This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. This is the last show before the annual CIES conference, which will be held in Vancouver from March 7th to March 10th. The Globalization and Education Special Interest Group is hosting many events at this year's conference. To kick things off, we are hosting a happy hour at the Yale Saloon on Monday, March 7th from 5 to 7.30 p.m. Come join us to learn about the SIG, meet some of our wonderful members, and ride the mechanical bull. That's right, there's going to be a mechanical bull. I'll be there, so please stop by and say hi. If you can't join us, however, then please check out our website where the full list of the SIG's events will be posted. Hope to see you there. Okay, now on with today's show. Educational transfer or policy borrowing is one of the major topics in comparative education. When I spoke with Ratna Lau in episode 7 of Fresh Ed, we discussed the ways in which a culture of borrowing has emerged in Thailand's educational quality assurance system. On today's show, I continue the conversation on educational transfer and policy borrowing with Jason Beach. Jason is a professor in the School of Education at the University of San Andreas in Buenos Aires. He critiques the very terms of educational transfer, suggesting the language we use is limited. Why, he asks, is it that the focus is always on policy and not other aspects of education? And he also questions if the very notion of globalization has lost its cutting edge in terms of theory and method. Instead of using grand narratives of domination or resistance, Jason uses relational notions of space, which I have talked about on this show with Marianne Larson and Jane Kenway. New spatial thinking provides Jason a language to think through new theoretical approaches to educational transfer. In an article co-written in 2015 and published in the Journal of Globalization, Societies, and Education, Jason uses the case of the one laptop per child scheme in Argentina, an actor network theory, to show how material and non-material actors create educational space and new vocabularies for educational transfer. Jason Beach, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. It's really nice to be here and be able to talk to you and to everybody who's listening. You've done a lot of work on educational transfer, which is a pretty big topic in the field of comparative education. Can you just give us a quick overview of what this term means and how it's been used in the field? Yes, well, um, educational transfer refers to the the notion of um, certain ideas, institution, or educational practices that are moved from one place to another. So, for example, when, um, say, usually, say, for example, the U.S. uh, is creating its own educational system in different states and someone like Horace Mann travels to Europe uh, and he sees what he thinks works there and decides to take it over, such as, for example, the normal school or when the Japanese copied the or some version of the Humboldt University. That's what usually is referred to as educational transfer, also policy borrowing, the idea of uh, something that's moved from one place to another. 
Um, and this is this, of course, has a long history in the in 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 the field of comparative education. The idea of learning from others has been always a big driver uh, in in research and uh, in practice-oriented research in, in comparative education since the origins of the field um, and up to now. And it, it often has to do with this idea of best practices, as if some other country or system is doing it better than the home country, so therefore you borrow the ideas from someone else. Yeah, the, overall it's, it's based on this idea of uh, if I... It, it usually starts with a with the identification of a of a local or an internal problem so if i have a problem i need to train teachers to create the nation or uh, i've got a problem with kids carrying guns into schools or whatever the problem is i i then try to find out instead of inventing a new solution what usually is done is trying to find out who has the, who's done it before, and, and how can I save time and energy by identifying these uh, best practices or good practices? So, so it's very much based on the assumption that good practices can be identified, um, adapted, and then moved into a, into a new context. Uh, of course, I'm I'm giving you a very simplified version of it. Then, then I guess that in the conversation we can make it a little bit more complex because, of course, what happens is that throughout history there has been uh, different ways in which these I ideas have been moved in which who's which kind of ideas move who are the actors so so and the, of course the way in which this is interpreted right and so what are some of the the common assumptions that that this sort of static notion of, of educational transfer um, makes well I mean the 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 problem, of course, is that th that this notion of transfer is very much based on on what what one could call the methodological nationalism or, or the idea that institutions or practices exist pure in one country in one place. First of all, it's it's based on kind of uh, the nation state as unit of analysis. Usually, when you read articles that are based on on this notion of transfer, they they are based on the idea that Argentina transferred the normal school from France, or uh, as I was saying before, the U.S. at some point transferred certain kind of primary schools from Britain. And it's this idea that something exists in one country and then is moved into another country and then maybe it changes because of the context. So uh, I think that that is kind of problematic, especially it, it might have been useful, or it might still be useful for certain cases, but overall in, in the current conditions of, of the global architecture of, of power we've got in education, things are a bit more complicated because ideas and institutions don't just exist purely in one place and then move to another. Actually, even in history, educational systems have always been constructed through the diffusion of ideas. So to what extent is say, whatever, the Australian educational system, purely Australian. Uh, I, I don't know if you're aware of, of this notion of the grammar of schooling, no? This idea of schools have a very similar grammar in most parts of the world, the way in which uh, it's divided in spaces, divided into rooms, the way in which students are divided into grades depending on their age, the ways in which uh, 
rooms are organized and all of that. It wasn't just created in one place and then it moved. It was the whole notion of the school was created as the idea of the school moved from one place to another. So um, what I've been trying to do in my work is to, to concentrate more on not an, on a static notion of transfer as if one idea exists in one place and then is moved to another, but rather on the idea that um, ideas, institutions are created in the process of moving and, and, and the way in which they move, the, the channels through which they move affect the shape that this idea, institution, practice is going gonna, is gonna to take. And the, the idea or the concept of globalization, um, which has become very popular and maybe overused uh, today, oftentimes is meant to overcome this issue of static borders, which is kind of embodied by this notion of the nation state. But you say that globalization has lost some of its edge as a, as a methodological tool. How so? Well, I think that the, the concept of globalization has become a, a very comfortable way of avoiding complexity. And uh, so, so you find a lot of talk about globalization. Uh, so globalization is, is often referred to as the cause, for example, for a certain educational reform. Um, but the question, of course, is so, so what do you mean by globalization? So globalization has become this word uh, that means everything and at the same time means nothing. I, I, of course, this is not the case for everybody who uses the concept, but in general, uh, it has lost much of its edge. It's, it's become a word that it's, it's being used without much critical analysis. And basically, the, one of the big problems with this is that it, it kind of takes the field of comparative education and, and education policy into this kind of binary notion of, of the construction of, of the global as something uh, abstract, something completely un, uh, that is out of control. So, so this idea there's something, something out there, globalization, that we don't control, and it imposes uh, ideas on us. No, it's, 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 it's this notion of uh, kind of a narrative of, of domination and resistance. The global dominates and imposes on the local certain views, for example, about you know, what many people call neoliberal views about education. It's imposed from the global into the local, and the local either uh, adapts and, and, and changes its system to adapt to this global discourse, or it can resist. It can be some kind of heroic resistor. But uh, I, and I think it, it's this binary between the global and the local needs to be broken up. First, because there's not such thing. I mean, the, the global is also composed by what we call the local. So whatever, we can see the OECD or the World Bank as the global, but the people who are working there, they come from certain places. When the World Bank imposes certain policies on a country, well, there is local people that are involved in, in, in buying those ideas and putting them into practices and acting them. And so it's, not, it's never purely global, purely local. It, it's much more complex than that. And I don't think that, at the end of the day, what I see is that these kind of concepts either are useful for us to further understand the kind of social issues that we're trying to understand, or they're not. And what's happening with globalization in many cases is that it's not really helping us to open up the kind of social issues that we're trying to understand, but rather it's a way of... of closing the black box and not looking inside.
And how would, a, how would the use of relational space, which is something that you use and, and Marianne Larson, who was on this show uh, in an earlier show, uh, uses, how would that um, concept help understand these social issues? Well, I mean, if you, if you start from, let, let me just, in case people are not aware, explain very, very briefly what's, uh, what, what do we mean by relational notions of space. It's seeing space not only, not only in its concrete form as, as uh, uh, for example, as a territory, as a, as a place, but also as a set of relations. So, say, you and me are now creating a space. We are, we are both in very, two very different places uh, but we are connecting, we are talking, and somebody's going to listen to this, hopefully, and and they're going to participate of this space in a certain way. So, uh, when relational notions of space are based on the idea that space is not something that is out there already, like a container of social processes, but it's also created by social relations. So when we are relating, we are creating a new space. And of course, the notion of network becomes very, very important, uh, both as a way of relating, or as, a, as a reality, as an empirical reality, but also as a methodological tool to understand social relations. And when you start looking at, at those relations in that way, you start, you can, it, it is a way in which you can start breaking up the for example, the binary between the global and the local, the macro and the micro, because what you see is that there are social relations that cannot be necessarily classified between in those ways. It's, it's not global, it's not local, it's somewhere in between, or it's both at the same time. And sometimes it's not even productive to think of them in those terms at all, but rather really unpack the relations that occur between actual actors. Exactly, and, and those actors, I mean, of, of course, depending on what you're trying to find out, it might be important to know if those actors are located in Washington, in Paris, or in Buenos Aires, or Cambodia, but uh, it might not be important. It depends very much on what you're trying to do. So, so these are very flexible uh, methodological and theoretical tools that you, that you have to adapt to whatever you're trying to, to understand. And what, uh, what I found useful about using relational notions of, of space is that you start to see relations and power relations that you wouldn't have seen so easily if you used kind of territorial notions of, of, of space. Could you give an example? Uh, let, let me give you an example of some research I've been doing. Uh, I mean, it might be a little bit long, but I, I'll, I'll give you a, an example of some research I've been doing. So, for example, I've been researching about a, a project that's been going on in Argentina for the last four years, more or less, that's called Conectar Igualdad, like connecting equality. Uh, and it implies quite a lot of things, but basically giving uh, one computer to every child in or every every young person in secondary schools in Argentina and of course teachers and connectivity and teacher training so for example if you would look at this program so so this program started in 2010 in Argentina it was launched by the president at that time Cristina Kirchner and and it was um, deployed already last time I looked three million eight hundred thousand computers had been given out it's a huge program and if you look at it from a, a what, what we were calling before a static perspective on, on transfer, 
you could start by saying, well, okay, it's it was Negroponte, Nicolas Negroponte in, I think, 2007, that started with the one laptop per child. He presented it in the Davos Forum, uh, the one laptop per child. And when that started, well, the whole idea of having one computer per child started, then uh, many countries in Latin America started adopting this, this kind of programs and technology, especially Uruguay, which is neighbor to Argentina, created a, a big program called Plan Ceibal. They gave one computer to every child in uh, primary education. That created a lot of pressure to Argentina to create their own program because, uh, of course, the press was saying they are doing it. Why don't we do it? At one point, Argentina launched it. So you could see how. So then the president launches it at the national level, and then it trickles down. It goes into the provinces and from the provinces into the schools. So you could see how this idea comes from MIT, comes from the global world, and it goes slowly into the regional and then into the national and from the national to the provincial, from the provincial to the local and to the schools. Now, the problem, of course, right. so a, pretty, a straight, a straight line, line and a linear way of looking at it. And you could act, actually, in, for example, in the work I, I was doing maybe 10 years ago, I would have looked at it that way and I would have tried to understand how it was transformed. So how was the original idea of Negroponte transformed in Uruguay, how it was then transformed in Argentina, as if it had gone in a, in a direct line from one place to another, and it transforms once. So this idea of context, you know, when it changes context, it transforms. Now, what the problem with that is that the borders between the global, the regional, the national, the provincial, the local, they're not really there they're not they're not so such strong borders so if you look at it in another way you can see so for example we with with my colleague alejandro artopoulos we studied this program and we decided to use actor network theory to look into it so basically just one thing about two things about actor network theory well what we tried to do was uh the the way it, actor network theory works is it doesn't try to like crystallize practice but it's it rather looks at 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 practice as the social as being in permanently changing as dynamic it's permanently changing there's a permanent process of innovation and the other two th things that are important is that it what they call the concept of symmetry so uh, human beings and non-human beings are considered in the same way so when, when you're recreating space a computer or a pencil or a, or a, a textbook have agency and they and they exert power Okay, so, so that sounds really strange, but I, I'll give you an example now. Uh, and, and the other thing, the methodological tool that, that actor network theory uses, what they call an assemblage, which is basically a network of human and non-humans that comes together to perform certain functions. So let me explain how you would look at Conectar Igualdad from that point of view. You could start, for example, with a very, very localized, simple issue that we saw. When, when we went to look at classrooms with a kind of ethnographic approach, we went to look at classrooms where allegedly that we were told that there were good practices in how these computers were being used. What we found over and over and over again was what, that these, these classes started 15, 10, 15, 20 minutes late. It was a long time taking, taken from to, to set up the, the computers. Okay, So if you look at that, that's a very localized problem. So, so immediately you could say, well, the teachers are not very well prepared. You know, the, the school doesn't have good infrastructure.
But it's a little bit more complex than that because, for example, some of the reasons, so, so if you start recreating a network of who is involved in these delays, you can start seeing how it's, there's very, very different actors that participate. Okay, so let's start by, by one actor. The national state comes and brings the computers in. Okay, so those computers are brought in by the national state. The national state created this whole issue because they wouldn't have been there, the computers, if they wouldn't have done that. Now, the national state also uh, provided classes with these kind of uh, routers or some other kind of what, what you have in your house to create a network and, and, and use Wi-Fi so that the computers could, could all be networked within themselves, okay? And the logic was that they were going to connect schools with connectivity so that kids could go and watch YouTube videos and other educational software, etc. Now, the problem Argentina is a huge country. It's very, very big. It's got, well, very, very difficult territory. So basically, that was a big failure. Only like 17% of schools were connected. And even when they were connected, when you have, say, 500 or 1,000 kids using your computers, watching YouTube videos, you need a very, very big connectivity. So most schools didn't have it. So what they did was found a new strategy and they brought in servers into schools and those servers could have the, um, the, the materials that the kids needed in there. Now, for the kids to access those servers, then the teacher had to connect every computer to the network, to the internal network of the school. On the other hand, the computers came with a software that was called um, um, e-learning class, okay? This e-learning class was provided by a Chinese company. And this e-learning class, with the routers or, or this technology that created the network, wouldn't work well. So the, the, the teacher spent hours and, well, not hours, sorry, minutes, 10, 15 minutes trying to connect every single computer to the network. On the other hand, teacher training had emphasized a lot this e-learning class because it was a way for teachers and teachers loved it because it was a way for teachers to keep control. With those, with that program, they could see what the kids, what each kid was watching in his or her screen. So they could avoid, of course, misbehaving and, and things that you can imagine. So it sounds like the computer has this, it's a non-human actor that has power over time, but also over other human actors, the students. Well, it's a whole assemblage. It's a whole assemblage of the students and their attitude. So most teachers wouldn't. So now let me tell you, now I gave you more or less. Let me tell you what happened. The students would arrive to school and they didn't have the computers many times because most teachers wouldn't use them. If they have them, they didn't have any batteries because they, they, they didn't have a full battery because they didn't have this uh, discipline of every night connecting the computers to plugging them in. So the, the teacher had to send the kids that didn't have a computer to the head's office to find replacement computers. The kids that didn't have batteries or didn't have a full battery had to connect their battery to the, to, to the plugs, but there weren't enough plugs. Or if the plugs were there, for example, a kid would come by and kick the, the, um, the cable when he was going to the toilet and disconnect the computer of six or seven kids that would lose their work. So this whole, look at how, what I'm trying to show is how all of these material objects, yes, the plugs, the, uh, the batteries, the, became the computers, the server, the router, became very important actors in defining 
the times of the classroom. The classrooms classes started to 15 to 20 minutes late because all of this new assemblage with all of these new things, but also with people that had to behave in different world in, in a different ways, was not working as it was expected. It was working in very different ways. So the teachers, students had to adapt to this, and of course also the, these objects had to perform functions that were different to what it was thought originally in the design of the plan. So, so I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm being clear here on how, when, and when you start looking at this as, a, as an assemblage of, of people and objects, what you start seeing is that there is a lot of uh, objects and people that are having an effect on the classroom and what it means to teach and learn in Argentina. So for example, these computers would all come with Microsoft Office, okay? Now, Argentina has a declaration in its law of education that private companies will never participate in public education, okay? Now, if you want to give 3.8 million computers out to the kids, the only way you can do that is if you buy them from the private sector. So, companies like Intel, companies like this Chinese company that make that software called e-learning class, uh, companies like Microsoft are having an influence on what it means to teach and to learn in Argentina, on the timing of the classrooms. I'm, I'm not saying this is necessarily something bad, but it, if we would have looked at it in a traditional way, we wouldn't have seen this interaction between how the, all of these Chinese, Californian, um, whatever, uh, global, if you want, actors are having a strong influence on what it means to teach and learn in Argentina. We would see this problem as a localized problem. We would say, oh, this is a problem of teacher training and teachers. Teachers don't know, are don't, not adapted to the knowledge society, and they don't know what they are doing. So taking, so seeing educational transfer with using the concept of relational space and using the approach of actor network theory basically raises new questions that would be completely unseen using the more static conception that sees the global, the regional, the national, the subnational in some linear fashion. Yeah, actually what I think is that uh, the whole notion and idea of transfer is, is not very useful. No, it's like even the notion of policy borrowing. Policy borrowing tends to focus on, on written policy texts and of course, policy text can be important, but what, I, what, what I'm trying to say is that uh, we need to look at the world in a very different way. You know what, what uh, Ulrich Beck calls a cosmopolitan sociology, you know, where the local, the global, the universal, the particular, uh, we, we should overcome these binaries. We have to look at it in a much more complex way in which there are new spaces of educational policy. So global forces, do not only come through the state. I mean, they come in very different ways, in ways that are somehow related to the states and in ways in which they don't even touch the state. So if you only look at the policy text and the way they are written, for example, in Argentina, we would assume that there is a strong resistance to market forces. And there is at the level of rhetoric and probably in the intention of policymakers, which is a genuine, well, depending on what you think about good or bad intention, but it's, it's a genuine intention of resisting neoliberal or market forces. But these forces, what they do is they come in through other ways. They, they, they bypass the state and they come in. So if we only look, I mean, that, that's the question. When we're looking at education policy, when we're looking at educational transfer, if you want to still use that word, uh, 
what we need to look at is how power moves throughout the world, how the way in which we define what is a good education and how it should be practiced is defined in different parts of the world. And if we want to really see that, we cannot only concentrate on policy text. We need to look at it in a much more complex way. And one way of doing it is using relational notions of space and reconstructing the networks of the classroom. For example, in this case, I mean, you could reconstruct the networks of the Ministry of Education. But seeing who and what is having an influence on the way in which a certain educational policy or an educational practice is being enacted. And, and basically, you see things that you wouldn't see from a very traditional perspective. So do you think the using the language of education transfer and policy borrowing, do you think they're, they're dead terms that we should simply move on from? Well, I mean, it might be too strong a claim, and, and if there's people that are comfortable using them, I'm, it's fine. I, I don't want to impose anything on anybody, but uh, um, at least for me, uh, it, they don't help me think anymore. They helped me for a while, and I think now they, they what, what they're, so I see concepts, I'm, I'm not dogmatic with concepts, I don't think that things need to be not used, like, for example, I criticize the concept of globalization, but when I read, for example, the work of people like Fazal Rizvi or Bob Lingard, and they use the word globalization. They use it in a complex way, and, and I like the way they use it. So it's not it's not necessarily that you have to discard the concept, but rather that you have to really think, well, what are you looking at? And is it really the best concept that you can use to open up? No, I think of concepts as kind of knives that can help you dissect and open up a social process that you're trying to understand. And so that's the question I, I ask myself. Is this the best way, or is it... By using the concept of transfer, I'm, I'm kind of using it to black box a lot of, of, of more complex issues. Personally, I think I, I'm more into this kind of move into cosmopolitan sociology, rethinking space in terms of how there are new spaces of education policy, new spaces in which education policy is being constructed. And it's mostly through networks that you can see that uh, uh, thinking of time in a different way, not thinking that education is a static process is something that is in equilibrium and then something comes from outside it it produces some kind of change discomfort and then the practice finds a new equilibrium i think we are changing permanently uh, and then of course this is this implies a huge methodological challenge that is what is empirical data uh, how and where do we find it and of course the big issue of how do we represent it because these these networks are very difficult to represent if you want to represent change we use that to take pictures and when we write a text we are writing a picture a photograph of a movie you know we are taking photographs of a movie and, and 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 how could we represent the movie you know the things that are permanently changing that's a, a big challenge we have you said that 10 years ago you would probably have been writing articles and papers um, based on this more static conception of educational transfer and now you are fully embracing the dynamic complexity, uh, cosmopolitanism of these processes. Why or how did you change in your thinking? Well, I mean, it's not that I would have, I did it. I mean, if I read my PhD thesis and many articles, that's the way I was thinking. Uh, I don't know, as I said, I'm not dogmatic. I, I think that, the, that theories 
I'm permanently reading new stuff, uh, thinking in new ways. I just, as you know, I've, I've been in, in Melbourne working for a year with Fazal Risby. That opened for me a whole new range of, and of course, other colleagues there in, in the Graduate School of Education in Melbourne. It opened up whole new lines of thinking, new ideas. I go to seminars, I go to conferences, I listen to people, and I try to incorporate all of that. And, and I, I'm... I think that the, the attitude that I have and, and many people have in our field and in other social sciences is, is of uh, being quite humble in terms of our capacity to understand the social world, which is very complex. So thinking that we already have the tool as, as some theories become crystallized in, and, and, and what people do is kind of retry that theory in new context and what they find is that this new empirical work they did the only thing that does is confirm the theory that they already have well that's boring i i don't see that as as productive i see that as as being kind of uh i don't know not not, not really productive not need really helping us see new things and of course it's, it's taking risks and, and when you're starting to use these other ways of looking at, at, at the world, you might see new things and you might lose others that you used to see before. So you always have to be uh, critical of, of, of the way in which you're, you're, you're analyzing the world, the kind of concepts you're using and, and be open to, to new ideas. That's, that's the way, for example, the work I did with Marianne Larsen on, on relational notions of space, which is kind of theoretical, opened for me the possibility of of rethinking a lot of the empirical work I was doing in parallel, um, maybe from another perspective. Well, Jason Beach, it's always inspiring to talk to you, and, and thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will, and uh, well, I hope uh, someone listens to this, and uh, it's useful for other people to think, and as I was saying, to, to think in, in new and different ways, and uh, of course, I'm open to the critiques of people who listen to this. <laughs> Jason Beach teaches at the University of San Andreas in Buenos Aires. Next week, I speak with Susan Robertson about educational regionalism around the world. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. You can subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes and follow the show on Twitter using the handle at Fresh Ed Podcast. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primal. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and see you next week.